Ok, parfait. I remember as a kid driving in the backseat of my parents' car, seeing a, a grove of trees, like a thicket. And we were driving, and suddenly there was an angle where you can see, wow, this is a plantation. There's like rows. At that moment, you can tell the coordinate of every tree because they're just on the lattice. And that moment, I remember as a kid, was like, wow, that's cool, right? So it <laughs> looks like a very complicated thing, but actually there's an angle where it looks simple. And that's my high point. I think I look for that. Welcome to the Night Signs podcast. Where we explore the untold story of the scientific creative process. We are your hosts. I'm Itai and I. And I am Martin Lurcher. We are extremely excited to have Uri Alon with us today. After his PhD in theoretical physics, Uri became excited about biology. He's now a professor at the Weizmann Institute of Science in Israel. Uri is perhaps best known in science for his contributions to systems biology. His concept of the network motive for understanding how genes encode regulatory circuits has been incredibly influential. In 2012, Uri published a landmark paper about the geometry of the space that describes the properties of evolved organisms. And overall, Uri's research is exceptionally broad in terms of the fields he covers, which is one of the reasons why he's one of today's most cited researchers. He's made contributions not only to experimental and theoretical biology, but also to psychology, uh, especially group creativity. And on that topic, Uri gave a very popular TED Talk on why science demands a leap into the unknown. His paper, How to Choose a Good Scientific Problem, also has been very widely read. And anyone who's ever heard him speak, Uri has a very joyful and playful attitude to science that is infectious. He also has a habit of singing songs during talks, which is quite entertaining. <laughs> uh, so Uri, you've been a true inspiration to Martin and I for many years, and we're so happy to have you here. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. And, uh, and I really appreciate this podcast, and I'm inspired by you too. Thank you. That's so, great. Uri, to get us started... We've seen your TED Talk on the leap into the unknown, and you use the analogy that when you're lost in a project, it's as though you're, you're in a cloud, and maybe you wanted to go from A to B, but suddenly everything gets sort of jumbled up and you feel lost. And I'm wondering if you can tell us more about that. First of all, I don't know where this idea came from. I wanted to give a word for this feeling that I feel quite often in science where you somebody pulled a carpet under my feet and I'm now disoriented. I don't know. Things aren't working out. That in the beginning caused me a lot of suffering because suffering is hardship without meaning, right? I didn't understand what was going on. I was judging myself. Maybe I'm not a good scientist. I can't. This isn't supposed to happen. And I was looking for a word that can... Uh, detoxify that and normalize it and also based on my experience in improvisation theater where you often don't know what's going on you get lost on stage in front of an audience and you need to realize that it's part of the process a normal part of the process and it has to be and in fact you can't discover something new without going through a stage where your assumptions break down it was of course improvised so the whole concept came when i was on my previous sabbatical at harvard medical school when i was invited just to do like a talk at a retreat and i used the whiteboard and just improvised the whole thing so you were invited to give a 
short talk and you just improvise it? You just got up there and you didn't know what you were going to say? Yeah, I didn't know. And there were two important things in that <laughs> talk, by the way. One is I invented a Pareto optimality scheme about choosing good problems where the two axes are how feasible the project is and how interesting it is. Then you can draw different mm -hmm. projects and there are projects which are more interesting and feasible than others. So you cross out the ones that are dominated by the better problems. And so that's a Pareto front idea. And that was 2008. And in 2009, I was invited by um, Kathy Kavanaugh for coffee to, I didn't know who she was. And we met at Starbucks and she showed me some data on uh, bone morphology of uh, chickens or something like that. <laughs> and I saw some pattern there and I got that it's Pareto optimal. And that was the basis for the 2012 paper that you mentioned in the introduction to understand patterns and evolution. And I got to that, I think, because I was thinking of pre-optimality in the context of choosing problems and, you know, all this soft skill stuff. So that 2008 chalk talk was somehow very important for both concept of the cloud and Pareto optimality. It's all mixed up, the soft skill work talks and the science. <laughs> it all comes from a kind of mist of ideas and interests in different domains that, that somehow synthesize. Yeah, it's also amazing. In, I mean, there's two things that I find amazing about what you just told us. And one is that you improvised like a couple of very cool ideas while giving a talk. Is that something that you do a lot? Yeah. So for me, I know it's not like that for all people. Sometimes I know what I'm going to say only after I said it, especially in conversations and in talks. I have something about the interaction and the opportunity to talk and the, somebody's listening. And I'm, that space is very generative for me. Now, that's really interesting. You also mentioned improvisational theater in your previous answer. And it sounds a bit to me like those two things could be related, right? That you're most creative when you actually don't know yet what you're going to say. Is, is there a connection to improvisational theater here? Improvisation theater really grabbed me. I mean, I, I studied a little bit like amateur theater where you memorize text and you read it on stage, you know, to be or not to be. But when I met improvisation theater, and especially playback theater, which is a theater where you hear somebody tell a story and then you improvise the story on the spot, aiming to expand their heart, let's say, or make a kind of empathy kind of on stage which is an amazing kind of improv theater for social connection. That's what I've been doing for 20 years. Something grabbed me there because it's creation on the spot, but it goes by listening because the way it works is that you have no idea what's going to happen, but then somebody says something like, Dad, and you don't block it by saying, I'm not your dad, I'm just an actor. You say, right. okay, I, I did my homework today. What do you want? Can I see my, can I watch my screen or something? You know, you respond to it. You build on right. it. Mm -hmm. Yes, and. and that, I think, is like an atom of interaction that is very generative to me. So you have another person or an audience and you, you say something and then there's something else happens. And if you can listen and build on it, that playful space is for me the essence of the creative. Uh, of course, some things happen alone with a piece of paper. That's another interesting thing. But some of it happens in conversations. So you explain to us what for you is the connection between uh, your scientific creativity in some way and improvisational theater, where you're also very involved. But is that something that you can also import into your scientific discussion? So when you talk with people from your group or with collaborators, 
Do you use similar techniques or do you import techniques from improvisational theater? It took me years to realize that there's any connection. Like you say, day science and night science. My day job and my night, it, it looked to me like two different <laughs> worlds. One was from the neck up, the other one from the neck down. One, one was serious, the other one was funny, etc. But it, it took me a long time to connect. But I bring this frame of being, um, of listening, especially of active listening into science. I sometimes, though, explicitly, I recommend to certain students to do an improv theater course because improv theater is taught in a very safe way. You can be a complete beginner and it slowly builds up and anyone can do it. Even if you're very shy, if you're a person with an inner critic that makes you think twice about every word you say, improvisation theater training, like eight weeks or something like, you know, once a week is just transformative. So a lot of my students did that. That's great. A student join your lab and you say, please take an improv theater class. Yeah, I recommend it. It exists in every city. If you're in New York City now or in Germany, I bet you there's a good class. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think not everyone because a lot of people get a little bit uncomfortable. And I have a story actually about this relating to you. I was in the faculty of biology at the Technion and you came to give a talk. And what was so different about your talk was that, you know, usually someone talks for you know, maybe 45 minutes and then the rest is supposed to be for questions and sometimes you go over their time and there's no time for questions but you talked for maybe about 20 minutes and then right. you just stopped and you you said well i'd like to hear what everybody else thinks now i want to have some questions and at first people were like you could tell people were just like sitting up straight like what's going on here what, what is this but then they got into it and they started asking questions and it turned into a discussion and it really felt like you were learning because you were hearing things that you didn't expect. And it, it was sort of improvisational in the sense that no one knew what was going to happen next. So I do that sometimes. And then I do use explicitly how to facilitate a group discussion that I learned from playback theater. And so when I come to an audience, sometimes I know that there's more expertise in the audience than I have, especially when I go to new field. And it's my opportunity to learn from people maybe I'll never hear from. And so I choose to talk for less time. And then what I do, very important, is I tell them why I'm stopping now. Like you said, I want to learn from you. And then it's really important for me how I facilitate. This is what I love your, about your podcast. You're focusing on the process, right? Not the results of science. So here's the process of how I get a conversation started. First of all, I relax myself because now we're going to be in silence for a few seconds. And that's uncomfortable for very uncomfortable, yeah. But I relax myself because I know this is part of the questions that are now bubbling up. And I keep talking and I say, any question would work if it's a comment or a criticism or something that I miss. I keep talking like that, you know, relax. And then somebody raises their hand and I say yes. And then I have my five-step plan because I'm nervous and that means I don't listen very well. So I know that from a lot of times I used to just want the question period to finish, to end, right? Sometimes I answer questions that are not, I answer a different question, you know, I don't hear. So what I do is I listen and then I repeat the question in their own words, really in their own words. And I look to see if they go yes. Or if not, I say, can you give me more context? And then I answer. And then I say, did I answer your question? And they say yes or no. And I'm listening. And after I do that, everyone in the audience gets on an emotional level that I, I'm there for them. I really want to answer the question. I'm very interested. Also, I repeated the question so everybody understands it. Also, if the question came with a kind of a dramatic action, that's it could be an aggressive dramatic action. Like, obviously, you haven't explored what happens at low temperatures or something. And I repeat it, and I say, so you're saying that we didn't explore what happens at low temperatures. 
and then I kind of keep everyone's dignity and I keep everything to a kind of constructive yeah you took the aggressiveness out you just now it's just the content not the yeah that helps me by the way listen to the context and not respond to the what we call dramatic action which is the invitation to change my emotional state and those skills I really practice them in improvisation theory but I think everyone can learn how to do that yeah I think that's fascinating actually because when we think I mean like Itai and I when we think about creative discussions right about discussions where we learn something new that's usually in the context of talking to people who we trust right? because to be creative you need to trust the people you're with and whereas if you give a talk to an audience that you don't even know then it's much harder I think to be open to that right and you're describing techniques of finding the same kind of openness right and the same ability to talk with people in this much more formal setting I think that's a great tool if one can use that that's a great observation because uh, I know straight stage fright is very common and of course I always get nervous before talks but now it's kind of I'm very experienced I say it's a kind of an excited nervousness mm-hmm. depends you know where the talk is but it depends again what our metaphor is for the audience is it a pack of wolves that's gonna <laughs> tear us apart or is it a group of scientists that actually want to be entertained and yes. want to hear good science so when you started to talk about the Using this question time to learn from the audience, you said especially if it's in a field that you don't know so much about where you think the audience actually knows a lot more than you on certain topics. So I think that is something that you've done a lot that you started to work in a field where you didn't have any or where you didn't have a lot of previous experience. So when you think about it in terms of creativity, What do you think are the relative roles of being an expert in something and of moving into a field where you haven't worked before? That's a great question. I think, again, is there are as many ways to do science as there are human beings, and different people can feel comfortable staying in one field and, that, and make great progress you know, over a lifetime and have a community that's very integrated and grow that community. My personality has a kind of feature where... I like to if I find other people are working on the same problem for me that's a sign to move to a new field <laughs> and Mark Kirchner once said and I really like that and once my field comes to the point where I can't read all the papers I move to a new field or something like that. <laughs> and that's my way and that kept me like a migrant or like moving from country to country in science you can say from first from physics to biology then from you gene expression to evolution, and now I'm working on physiology, aging, hormone circuits, and each hormone circuit has its own thing. Uh, ovulation is different from the stress axis, inflammation and fibrosis. So I've developed a kind of way of thinking about how to enter new fields. And so how do I do it? First of all, it's like it takes years to, to, once you're working in a field, to suddenly feel a little bit fed up or like, okay, I understand more or less what's going on and, start, and start to have an opening in your soul to say, okay, I'm going to change fields, but what will it be? And then start kind of playing with that. So you open the door to that. And then usually it's hearing something in a new field where I can connect with knowledge from the old field. So for example, in bacteria, I worked about paradoxical enzymes that Let's say make and break the same protein, phosphorylates and dephosphorylates, or the same protein makes and breaks something. Why do you put two opposing behaviors in a single component? And I uh, figured out that that can have important properties. Like if you change the level of that component, both opposing tasks 
change in the same amount and that the ratio stays the same and that gives you kind of a robustness. So I worked on enzymes in E. coli and then I saw an abstract by Uvaldo just hanging in the elevator, you know, one of those abstracts on the talk saying that glucose makes the cells that produce insulin that control it both divide and die. And I said, wow, that's a paradoxical thing, you know, glucose kills and promotes the cells that control it. And then I started getting interested in hormone circuits and over slowly and together with fabulous students, I suddenly saw a whole field where I can use what I know in one field in a completely new context, which is really fresh. And so that's the kind of, I think if I try to analyze it, that's the way a transition happens for me. So I'm expert in one domain and I bring that to a, a new domain. Usually in my field, it's the kind of uh, systems that have been studied to death, like glucose insulin is considered like well understood, etc. But when you bring a new angle, suddenly you see new questions. Another thing that I noticed is that I have this kind of deliberate ignorance. So I go into the field, I read a little bit, and then I do something. And after I do something, then I read the literature deeply and understand where the field, where the dogmas are, etc. And so Interesting. it's a kind of a timing of ignorance. There's a generative ignorance, <laughs> and then at some point it becomes not so generative. And I learned that sometimes the hard way. You know, I submit papers and reviewers say, oh, but there's this and this and this, and they get it that I don't understand where the field is at, or I've read a textbook and now the whole field is busy proving that the textbook is actually not completely correct. And so I add now to the mix at a certain point to start Zoom meetings with experts just by talking with them and doing this listening thing that I've described. Understand, understand what is the field doing, what papers they value and which don't. Sometimes, you know, some papers are, are just considered to be wrong, but nobody, t- nobody knows about it in the printed literature. I don't have a community, so I don't have, you know, the regular annual meetings and the colleagues, and the arch colleagues and the nemesis. <laughs> arch I don't, enemies, yeah. I don't. Now, when, when somebody new enters a field, a lot of times there could be something like, who's this person? Yeah. Like, what is it? So I know that if I talk to people by Zoom and engage with them, I can turn potential rivals into allies just because I'm very interested in getting guidance. And people love sometimes to guide. You know, I say, I'm entering a field. I don't know the language. I don't know the, you know, the jargon. I really need your jargon. And so, of course, when you don't have a community, you take a penalty. It's much more difficult to publish. It's very, very difficult to get funding. But then there's a turning point. Some point the field, if it's interesting, gets it, and then you have a lot of support. And it requires a certain amount of uh, resilience to go through the beginning. But I've done it now enough times, and I feel that maybe there's even very useful for us to discuss in this podcast. Is there a process, like some generalities to the process of changing fields? And I very appreciate your question. And Uri, you know, when you say that when you move fields, you sort of like to export an expertise that you have in one field into the field that you're coming into. But I'm wondering if you could consider an alternative idea, which is that by now you sort of know yourself better than ever, and you know your style of research. And is there a kind of Uri project? Is there like an idea that certain flavor of ideas that maybe because of their simplicity, maybe because of their scope, you're drawn to more. In other words, it's not so much that you're bringing your expertise, but more a kind of general sort of notion that no matter what field you go to, you're after those notions. I think that's very, very deep and insightful question. And I believe that 
what we bring to the table as scientists is a kind of uh, each person has a kind of tuning fork that resonates in general in the world with what is good and true and beautiful and that tuning fork resonates with nature like when we study and, and that's one source for asking scientific questions and each one is a different so sometimes when I interview students I ask questions like you know think about your first degree that you studied and What moment you said, "Wow, this is good, this is right, this is I want it. like it could be a very small moment, and one person would say, "Pasteur discovered a vaccine for a disease, and, or another person says, "Oh, Newton said found that you know the apple and the moon are governed by the same rules, and so <laughs> each person has a different resonating fork, and that helps me also then when, after I listen to that, describe my projects to that student in a way that's uh, most likely to resonate with them. So, ah. and also to see how we resonate. Yeah, what's your resonating for? Yeah, it's resonating tuning metaphor, right? So metaphors are very important in science, of course, because we want to talk about the unknown. So we take something known and entail some properties on the unknown. And that's how science works, by the way, with these metaphors. Evelyn Fox Keller has a great book about that. For me, my tuning fork, I like very much that Newton moment where you can have mathematical principles you can write down on a small piece of paper. And they explain something that happens in the world. And that's something that is universal. It happens on big scale and small scale and explains a lot with a little. And that's a miracle for me. And it could be also visual, geometrical. So in a lot of my work, there's like triangles for some reason, like feed forward <laughs> loops or the triangle, the Pareto front. I don't know, something geometrical I like. And I like differential equations because of the capturing motion. So these are like my ingredients, I think. And I like... to start from paradoxes like glucose killing and promoting the same cells to ask why is it built like this and not in a simpler way and then to find uh, principles that's a lot of times happens in my research you start from like things that are seem to me like oh that's more makes sense yeah. Been. yeah what's in a strong belief this belief by the way is comes I think from physics education or maybe before physics education something different deeper in being a first child in the family believing that systems have a reason and that there is simplicity you know maybe as a first child in the family the fact that I had some privilege and I didn't need to do the dishes and my sister needed to do I said oh the system actually works for me and maybe there's a reason for that you know <laughs> maybe maybe the world is optimal or so of course that's like of course who knows where these tuning forks come from they're, they're self-serving maybe they're have to do with some who knows where but the belief that underneath the complexity of nature there is a hidden simplicity that doesn't explain everything but at least there's some angle where it does explain and capture so like I remember as a kid driving in the backseat of my parents cart seeing a, a grove of trees like a thicket and we were driving and suddenly there was an angle where you can see wow this is a plantation there's like rows. At that moment, you can tell the coordinate of every tree because they're just on the lattice. And that moment, I remember as a kid, was like, wow, that's cool, right? So it <laughs> looks like a very complicated thing, but actually there's an angle where it looks simple. And that's my high point. I think I look for that. that that's, that's really interesting. So you talked a little bit about what are the kind of projects that excite you, that you get interested in. So when you... hear an idea it might be your own idea or it might be an idea you hear at a conference or something that a student brings to you do you have any criteria that you can describe how you distinguish the good ideas from the 
maybe more mediocre ideas? So one thing, if it's in my head for a year and nobody else has done it, or two years or five years, then it's more likely to be a good project because you know, I have a lot of ideas, but I forget about them. So uh, that's one. The second one is, as I said, I'm very oriented towards discussing with people. So how excited am I when I describe a project? That's also interesting for me to see. And if I do the tuning fork right, and I know how we resonate, the student and me, it could be a very, very powerful resonance when I talk about the project because it's like hitting right on what we both find interesting. In my research, I studied the mirror game, which is a practice in theater where one person moves and the other one moves with them and you kind of mirror each other and then there's no leader, no follower. You can still do a choreographed dance almost without a leader and follower, but just mirroring each other. And we studied that, like the motion on the second time scale to show that you can really have novel motion without a leader and follower. And I think that can happen also in scientific projects. I have a problem sometimes where I think a problem is very good. Some papers are very important and the rest of the world apparently doesn't. <laughs> that happens to me. I guess we all know that. We all know that feeling. Yeah. And that's interesting, right? To think about that. And that generates a force on me because I also want to get positive feedback from the world. And I noticed that after a while, if I'm slugging away at a problem and I don't get that positive feedback, I tend to move to other problems. And I'm just built like that, kind of a heart type. I do care. And I guess everyone cares to different degrees about the response of the audience, of the world, etc. And it hurts when there's a dissonance. You know, Uri, you mentioned earlier when we talked about metaphors, Evelyn Fox Keller. She also wrote this book, A Feeling for the Organism, about Barbara McClintock. Yes. And there is one of the cases that you just described where McClintock, she introduced this notion of transposition, I think already in 49. So before we even wow. know that DNA is the genetic material, oh, oh, that, that DNA is a double yeah. helix. She's already talking about transposition, and that work was ignored universally almost Correct. for many, many years. Yeah. And she stuck with it. Eventually, the world came around to it after Jacob and Monod and, and the work of others. So there's a case of the opposite, where you keep sort of plugging along, even though the world doesn't care. Yeah, she has a really different personality than me. Barbara McClintock was an incredibly self-contained kind of personality. Yeah. But that's why I want to say in science, that's a great example. Why science benefits from having a mix of very different people. Because each person not only has its own tuning fork, each person has their own, just what you're asking, what is a good problem? How much I stick with it? How much I respond to external world voices? And Barbara McClintock's case, I guess, is maybe... One in a thousand, there probably are a thousand other Barbara McClintocks that didn't even get the world to recognize what they did, right? I think science, you know, maybe thanks to podcasts like what you're doing, can be much better in terms of both satisfaction to the scientists and our bottom line. If we can expand a range of models for what science is, our ways of listening to each other, our ways to support different styles in science and by the way, I want to say another thing. There's the issue of not only positive feedback, but feedback like somebody writing a technical comment about your mistakes in your paper. 
And being a hard type, that has a very powerful effect on me. I can't sleep at night. I'm really, really hurt, especially if I consider it inaccurate. Or... But reflecting back, those moments actually, in the end, spurred me to do very important things maybe I wouldn't have done otherwise. So, for example, one technical comment about network motifs that actually came from Israeli colleagues that... Yeah, Louis Stone. Instead of telling me, they, I found out through the journal, I was really hurt because I thought, you know, we were colleagues, etc. But that drove me to have energy to write a whole book about systems biology. Oh. And just okay, state my really? case. Yeah. That's the origin story of the famous uh, introduction? Yeah, no, I, you know, I wanted biology. to write a book for a long time, but I didn't have the energy. It's wow. a great book, by the way. I really liked it. Thank you. And that's very important because many people tell me that that book helped them enter biology from computer science or physics or things. That's a, I think it, it's, and I'm very proud of it. And I wrote a second edition recently. So I always say that even criticism that I don't agree with has its evolutionary place, you can see. See how much I believe the world is. Uh, <laughs> and that happened again now with another criticism about Pareto optimality that just yeah, drove, I, I, drove I saw me saw crazy. That paper, yeah. And after that, I just helped us invent a new algorithm that addresses like in an elegant way all the criticism. Now I'm convinced even more that, <laughs> yeah, so that I'm very proud of that. And so it's like, that's another aspect of scientific process that uh, I guess I'm learning to appreciate it's nice. So the way you talk about your science and also your creative process, it seems like it's very much consciously interlinked with psychology like the way you interact with people, the way you interact with the world or with the field. Is that something that you've been aware of during no. all your scientific life or is that something no. that you had to learn? No, no, no. When I was a graduate student, I felt very different. I wanted communication to be different somehow in physics, but I had no psychological concept. And when I moved to biology and then my PhD, like just to try out biology, I found that there are other cultures exist in science. You know, people talk to each other differently. That was enlightening. Just like Marco Polo, you know, going from Europe to <laughs> Asia, finding another culture and then reflecting back on their own culture. It's like, it was amazing. And then doing theater, it slowly got more like tools, et cetera. But I didn't make connect the dots. I made a lot of mistakes as a, like a, as a mentor in the beginning because I didn't know how to listen. So I would hire people without knowing who they were and they start fighting. I didn't know how to deal with conflict. So I, it was so hard for me those first years. Now I devote part of my time doing workshops for new faculty members because I remember how hard it is to be a new faculty member and not have concepts and clues how to do this new role of leading other people into the unknown and listening, etc. And so slowly I began to develop self-awareness. Of course, I had the seed of listening and playfulness and everything, but only after, like, you can say I got tenure maybe, and then I started feeling that I can talk about this in the public sphere and build groups where the culture is accentuates certain values will make people, even though they're very different, emphasize those values. Like if cooperation is a good value and teaching each other is a good value, if you radiate that, the group will gravitate to that and then you have a certain kind of culture. And if you believe that's the way science should be, then I definitely say it's worth it. You know, at this point, I have to tell our listeners a story that... One of your postdocs, Galit Lahav, who's now the chair of the systems biology department at Harvard Med School, once told and that was that she was in New York City to do an experiment while she was in your lab. She traveled and, and uh, long story short, she called you up and told you that all of the experiments are failing. Everything is a mess. Nothing's working. 
and she was in tears almost. And you just asked her, have you been to a museum while you were in New York City? Have you done anything besides go to the lab? And I think that was great because it gave her a chance to take a breath and start anew. Well, thanks for bringing it. I really um, I have a tear in my eye now that you remind me of that. <laughs> it's a great story. It gives yeah. me goosebumps every time. I mean, of course, I'm not, I'm not always uh, like the, I wish I was, but uh, I guess I was just <laughs> responding to the human, you know, just we're human beings. We have a really desperate situation. Time's running out. Experiments aren't working. And it's just basically seeing the human being is more important right now than the outcome of the project or whatever it was. And that is a principle that I believe that approaching science like that in the long run is both the way I'd like it to be and actually somehow makes science, even the bottom line, better because human beings do science. And, and like we discussed before, trust and also just the bare point that if you're stuck taking a vacation, doing something else can unstuck you. And also thinking, how would I like to be treated? It's all these things together, I guess, is in that story. Yeah, so. I think it's a great story. And I think it's very rare that active scientists so consciously deal with these things. I think that's really great. But I'm wondering, when you're mentoring people, apart from these psychological human aspects, do you also consciously mentor them about creativity? Yes, so I, I'm very conscious about mentoring. What we're discussing here in this podcast, I, I try to include in the education, let's say, people in my group. So we have group meetings devoted to how to give a talk, how to have a scientific conversation, group meetings about how to present myself, like how to do a short presentation of myself in a conference, which is basically, again, a human thing, thinking about not starting with what I did, but what's the big question and why do I care and how am I special, what I bring to it, and then how to give feedback. So I think training in science, we should frame it as much, much wider. Training in science is actually to give people skills to go into the unknown and face their own personality and present in whatever they do in the world later because all the AROB problems have already been automated. It's the cloud problems that are like climate change and fake news and blah, blah, that are require people who can go in with quantitative thinking and face the cloud and face their own personality and, and know how to present effectively. And that science is a great training ground for that in a safe environment. And that's the way I think we should frame graduate education in science and then unleash this amazing people to the problems of the 21st century. And that's something we can gain by making our process more explicit to ourselves, just like in this podcast. Have you thought about writing a textbook about soft skills in science? No, I haven't thought about that. I thought about maybe making an appendix in my new book that I'm writing now on systems medicine about that, and kind of like an afterthought. But I haven't thought about it. Actually, that's a good idea. Maybe you planted the seed. <laughs> <laughs> It'll all trace back to Barton's question now. Well, you talk about the policymaking during COVID, and you talked about your new research earlier on human health, uh, fertility, and, and aging. Maybe you didn't say fertility, but you said aging. I did say we uh, work on ovulation. Oh, ovulation. right. You did say it, yeah. So my question is, I look at a lot of your work as really the work of a pure mind <laughs> in the sense that 
you really like sort of general principles and you call them design principles. And now you're embarking into a world of practicalities, of deliverables. And do you see that as kind of like a new challenge? So first, maybe you said design principles. I want to give credit to my postdoc advisor, Stan Leibler, who introduced me to this idea of design principles in biology. And I, I keep going with that. I think, again, that resonates with my tuning fork. I'm more theoretical than ever now. So my group is less experimental and more theoretical. And I I am very relieved to go back to the theory that I love. So when we talk about ovulation and thyroid disease, I want to understand the theory behind medicine and physiology and the principles that unite different systems, etc. And I'm aware that they suggest new avenues for treatment, but I refrain from using my time to go to the applied side, even though I do collaborate with other groups who do look for, like, for example, right now, drugs to help heart failure and drugs to help fibrosis in the liver that just basically came out of our theory, like the targets. But I don't do that myself. Both, it's not a strength of mine. And second, I think that maybe this is a kind of, um, maybe there's an urgency I have, which is not to waste my time, not to waste my life. And I think that right now, there are fewer people who could do the theory right and are interested in that than people who can do the translation right. And I want to use my time in the most impactful way. That's one urgency, but also maybe the tuning fork. I just want to have those aha moments where I think here's a principle, a new one or an old one that applies. And I think in my new book, I'm going to try to basically outline a theory of medicine and try to be, it's kind of an ambitious project. It starts from like laws and ends up with a periodic table of diseases. And I've taught it already three times, this course. It's on YouTube too. And it's very enjoyable for me because of these principles and hope that people will be inspired to think of new ways to treat diseases, etc. So that's a long answer to your question. And I kind of find myself refraining from going to the translational aspects and more and more seeking theory at this point in my career. So the things in agreement with your internal tuning fork, that's actually an image that's going to stay with me, I think, the tuning fork. While I'm waiting for you to write that textbook on soft skills and science. Maybe I'll call it the tuning fork. <laughs> yes, yes, call it the, call it the tuning the, fork. Yeah. The fork. Ding! <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's also musical, yeah. right? You tune your guitar. Yes, <laughs> right. I think it's a great analogy, Uli. Well, Uli, this was such an enjoyable conversation. Thank you so much. Oh, it's over already. Right. <laughs> well, if, if you have more things to tell, we're very no, happy I, to I, hear I, them. I really, just, just to say, I enjoyed it very much. And I, your questions were so precise. And thank you for giving this gift for scientists to think about their own process. I think very important. Yeah, thank you, Uli, for your really thoughtful answers to you. Uh, yes, I mean, you're probably one of those scientists that have thought most about these things, right? That Who's most conscious about the scientific process, your scientific process, and your role in the scientific community. So it was extremely interesting. Thank you very much. And also, it was an opportunity to improvise together, right? <laughs> totally. <laughs> Absolutely. We had a back and forth that was uh, yeah. productive. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Well, thanks a lot. Thank you.